0: You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning and welcome again to Grace Community Church. If this is your first time, I'm not sure that I see too many first-timers, but you could be out there somewhere, we extend to you a very special welcome and are grateful you chose to be with us this morning. Uh, two or three things I need to mention before we get started on the sermon. Um, first, Scott wanted me to mention that the pictures that he referenced in the prayer time are on a Faith Life link, so you can go to Faith Life and see those pictures. And you'll probably see a picture of Joya Hunziker. She's here with us. Uh, she's with staying with the Willifords for a few weeks, and then her parents are going to be joining here, not too uh, terribly distant future. I thought they were going to say, hello, Joya, but they didn't say it. So, But we still love you, even if you're parents. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Um, next week, when you get to church, it's going to look a lot different. We're doing a lobby renovation that is going to take about a month, and it's going to add a lot of space in that lobby, which we really need between services, especially as uh, students get back and just we get the fall rush and the winter rush that we, rush is not the proper word, but you know what I mean. Our numbers grow during that time of the year, so be prepared for that. And also prepare in your hearts and minds and your shopping list for the potluck that is coming two weeks from today. So it's going to be after the second service. If you come to the first service, you've got to go home and get it or just bring it and leave it uh, warming up and go get some coffee during the second service, whatever. Or come to the second service and bring lots of food because we ex- anticipate a fair number of students and their job is to make sure that you don't go home with too many leftovers. So please bring a lot for potluck. And then one last quick announcement. There's so many in the bulletin right now. The church year, the calendar, is, is, calendar year for us is starting up. But in September, on September 5th and 12th, we're going to have two Thursday nights uh, where we hold Grace Connection. It's four classes that will be covered over two weeks on September 5th. And 12th, our next Grace Connection class, like they've always been in the past, or almost always been in the past, will be on Sunday mornings during one of the two services. But the next one is not scheduled till the 1st of November. So if you want to get in on Grace Connection, this is a good time to do it sooner uh, rather than later. September 5 and 12th. Well, do you remember a television show? It's not been that many years called 24 any 24 fans you don't have to raise your hand just I I know you're out there 24 was a great show about the counter-terrorism unit in Los Angeles it took place over one full day now the story took place over one full day the show itself lasted for several months but it would be one hour this week one hour the next sometimes they would do two hours and you really like those weeks Um, The show featured Jack Bauer, who was the hero, and he led viewers on some ridiculously exciting, crazy missions. And there were several things that we learned from 24. First, every place in Los Angeles, and even some in Mexico, are within 15 minutes of the counterterrorism unit in CTU in Los Angeles. Second, Jack Bauer can go 24 hours without going to the bathroom. Three... Any character, no matter how beloved, may be dead at the end of the show, but only Jack Bauer will be brought back to life at the beginning of the following week. So if you watch the show, you almost couldn't wait. None of this Netflix business where they put out the whole season. You almost couldn't wait for Monday nights at 8 p.m. to see the next hour of 24. So what does that have to do with the message? Today's text for the sermon, is John 8, verses 12 to 32. Part of our continuing series in John. And if you've been here for several weeks, this may feel a little bit like 24, because the events of John 7 and 8 occur on the same day, and it's just stretched out. We're taking several weeks to get through what happened on that first day. I can promise you that even though... You may not have spent the latter part of this week saying, Oh, well, Sunday morning, just never get here. The people who were listening to the debates between Jesus and the religious leaders were on pins and needles just waiting to see what was going to happen next. The day on which the events and debates recorded in John 7 and 8 in which those events took place, was the last day of the Feast of Booths, which was a seven-day event that had been stretched into an eight-day celebration, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. The last day of the feast was especially festive, which is where we find ourselves yet again uh, today. Although our text is 21 verses long, we're just going to look Read a couple from verse 12 and then verses 12, or excuse me, 28 through 32, uh, but then we're going to pick up on some highlights along the way. Not going to be reading every single verse today, so I'm going to encourage you to go back and read this text later, if you would. It's our custom to stand as the scriptures read, so if you would, please stand while we read John eight portions of John 8. Verse 12. Again, so by the way, this picks right up from 753. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus said to them in verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in, believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let's pray. Well, Father, um, in a day of very, loud voices that get a great deal of affirmation from this side or that side. We often wonder, is that really so? Is that the way it is? When we come to Jesus, we don't have to wonder. He's the truth. His words are true. Your word, Father, guides us. Your word As a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. And so we pray that as we sit in your word on this day. That our hearts would be drawn not only to the beautiful reality of the truth. But also to the giver of life to the one who died that we might live, Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Thank you and be seated. There's a great deal for us to apply in John chapter 8, but it is only properly applied when we understand the context for the big statements that Jesus made from which we take so much application. Uh, We need to understand the big picture worldview slash social imaginary that Jesus presented to the Pharisees in the course of their ongoing debate. This debate just never really finished. It started up early in his ministry, and and especially John records the things that happened in Jerusalem on the special feast, and it was this ongoing debate. It would pick up, then it would tail off for a little bit, but then it would pick back up again. (laughs) Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be the Son of God, but they knew that he meant he was equal with God. Thus, he was God. He claimed to be Lord over all creation. And since the context helps us to understand the specifics of the text, I'm going to highlight just a few of the uh, portions of the conversation so that we can apply this truth with all our hearts and that's exactly what we're called to do by Jesus in John 8. John eight twelve picks up where John seven fifty two left off. We're at the last day of the feast. Whether the 7th or the 8th, we're not sure. But we are certain that Jesus is making claims about himself that are in conjunction with the events that occurred at the Feast of Booths you listen to the last two weeks podcast, sermon podcast, you'll get a lot more of the context for even the things that we're going to learn today. The Mishnah, or Mishnah, was a a written summary of the Jewish oral laws and traditions. And thus, it's quite helpful for us to understand, uh, further our understanding of the background for Jesus' audacious claims about who he was and is. These don't seem... That audacious to us, that was a great analogy that Scott made about how the the believers in in, in Italy are are looked at by the largely Catholic population as Jehovah's Witnesses are looked at here. (laughs) So we're very familiar with these claims of Jesus, and we say, yeah, of course. But would we have thought that during that day? (laughs) <laughs> One of the key events at the, at the Feast of Booths was the lighting ceremony that took place in the Court of Women, which was in the treasury. And that was the exact location from which Jesus spoke <clears throat> when he said, I'm the light of the world. John 8.20 tells us that. And I am the light of the world is the second of the, of the great I am statements that Jesus makes about himself where he follows it up with a description of who he is I am the bread of life I am the light of the world This is from the Mishnah quote <clears throat> At the end of the first day of the feast of booths the priest the priest went down to the court of women where there were four great candle holders there and they would ascend the ladder to light each candlestick There was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that was not lit up from the light now the Mishnah talks about the first day of the Feast of Booths. We also know that there was a very special celebration on the last day of the Feast of Booths. So just imagine Jesus crying out, I am the light of the world! Just as these candles are lit, these huge torches are lit. Here's what Shane Rosenthal, Rosenthal from the White Horse Inn had to say about the lighting ceremony and the connections that he makes. The ceremony was intended to remind the Israelites of God leading them through the wilderness by a pillar of fire. Remember, all of John 6, John 7, now John 8. It's all connected to the wilderness wanderings, the bread, the manna that came down, the water ceremony, and God providing water from the rock. Now... This lighting ceremony was to remind them of how the pillar of fire led the children of Israel at night. So, the most dignified men, this is what Rosenthal says, the most dignified men of the nation would dance and celebrate. They would celebrate Yahweh's provision and his guidance for the people that he loved. The religious leaders had the form right, but the form had become an end in itself. Thus, the Jewish leaders had lost sight that they were to be a blessing to the world. See, when when the Israelites would go to the Feast of Booths, they'd see those lights blow up and they'd say, Oh, Yahweh lights the way for His people, which was true. But Jesus reminded them that the light was to spread far beyond the borders of Israel. And it was in this context that Jesus spoke to the leaders saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, not just Jews, but whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Like many of Jesus' claims about his identity, this was to the point of being blasphemous, if not true. The association between Yahweh and light and life was so well established in the Old Testament that Jesus was unquestionably making a claim of deity. But he just didn't do it the way they needed him to. Jesus was very popular among the people. The religious leaders saw him as a threat to the survival of the nation of Israel. And so they wanted to kill him, but they couldn't do it unless he made some blasphemous c- claim that everybody would say, oh, that's just too much for us. You're right. We just need to kill this guy. So he was right on the edge all the time. Having failed uh, in their attempt to secure Jesus' arrest, the leaders now sought to discredit him. When he says your testimony is not, is not true, what, what they mean is it won't hold up in a court of law. Your testimony is not valid. And Jesus and the, and, and, and the leaders went back and forth On all of that. So in verses 13 to 20. We see that debate. And then verse 20 gives us a real reason. That the leaders. Could not arrest. Jesus. It Was not God's time. For him to be arrested. And glorified in his sacrificial. Death. When you see John. Talking about Jesus being glorified. More often than not. It's pointing to the cross. The time that he would be lifted up. That was his greatest glory. And it's our great glory that Jesus died in our place. Now, let me ask you a question. If you were in a public debate, and I'm not talking about a Twitter storm debate. I'm talking about if you're face to face. And you've said something that angered the authorities who have the right To arrest you and make your life miserable. Would you escalate or de-escalate the tension? I would tend to de-escalate the tension. And I hope if it ever comes down to saying truth or, or, or wimping out. That I'll speak the truth. But I would be doing it. No, 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 no. Look, don't. I'm just telling you what Scripture says, but Jesus never de-escalated in the Gospel of John. Every time you think, oh, this would be a good place for him to step back, he moves forward with another comment. In verse 21, he told them that he was going away. They would have been happy about that, but he said, no, that'll be bad news for you if your antipathy toward me continues. Because you will die in your sins. Their response was to mock him. What Jesus said next, once again, is understood better when we know the context for his comments. This again from the Mishnah. Quote, The requirement for the dwelling in the booths are for seven days. And every day they walk around the altar and say, Aniwahu, save us, we pray. Aniwahu means, I am he. This tradition was likely referencing among other texts, Isaiah 43.10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. So God had made very clear. Yahweh had said over and over in the Old Testament, I am he. In this context, let's read verses 23 and 24. He said to them, you are from from below, I am from above. He didn't mean they're from below the earth. He just meant you're of the earth. You think like people on the earth think. I am from above. And my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. The Jews were like, wait, what? Who are you? It wasn't really like that. They knew exactly who he was claiming to be. He was saying, God, Yahweh, stands before you. Jesus was right on the edge with his claims. Next week in John 8, 58, Jesus is going to throw off all ambiguity when he says, before Abraham was, I am. That's when they are going to pick up stones to stone him. But it still wasn't Jesus' time to be lifted up on the cross. Jesus' point in verse 28, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. does not mean that when he's on the cross, they're going to say, Oh my, we were so wrong about him. But because of the work of, of the cross, when Jesus returns in power and glory, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. <clears throat> no wonder we're told in verse 30 that many believed in him, even though the leaders as a group did not believe in him. We know Nicodemus is well on the way if he's not already there, but many, most of the leaders didn't believe in him, but many of the people did believe in him, and Jesus knew what they were thinking. They were thinking, "Hey, I like what this guy's saying, I think' I think I'm going to go with this." He was saying, "No, no, 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 look, this is not just a a, a moment in time where you're going to think that I'm saying something good here, and then you're going to move on to something else when I'm off the scene. He said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Verse 31 begins another section of John 8. So we'll pick back up in verse 31 next Sunday. But it also provides application for the portion of John 8 that we have read today. Three things to ponder, for us to ponder and act on from this text. First, following Jesus is an all or nothing proposition. It always has been an all-or-nothing proposition. But it's not like a commitment to CrossFit. Nah, I think I won't do that. Allison and I gave it serious consideration, but with, with her foot the way it is, we just said, nah, we're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. By refusing to say yes to Jesus, we confirm the no that already exists in our hearts from birth. So do you get that? It's not like yes or no. It's already no. And the only thing that will change that will be yes to Jesus. (laughs) I would like to say that a proposition, uh, such a proposition, is much clearer in 2019 than it was, say, 30 or 40 years ago. But many continue to believe that Jesus is a nice accessory to the life that we deserve. Look, you deserve this. You deserve that. But Jesus, if you just add Jesus to it, that's a nice little addition to your life. A relationship with Jesus is too many. A spiritual component that completes those who are following their hearts in pursuit of their dreams in the life that they always wanted. Let's get tickled, you know, on those shows like American Idolatry. I mean American Idol. Um, you know, when some 15-year-old kid says, I've wanted this my whole life. And I'm thinking, you know, but look, what, don't you think God probably thinks the same with us if we're 89 and we're saying my whole life? And he's like, your life's just begun. Your life is just begun. And what we do with Jesus is going to determine the focus and the course of our lives. Jesus said, you've got two options. Now, think about this. And do not, do not ever be the cause of offense when you share the gospel. Allow the gospel to be an offense. But do not water this down when you talk to people. Jesus said you have two options. Believe me with your whole heart and walk in light rather than in darkness. Or reject me and die in your sins. But if you die in your sins, prepare to face the wrath of God. When Jesus died on the cross, he took upon himself the righteous wrath of God that is properly directed towards sinners. Look, it's... I've said this a lot. The, the Christian scriptures are the only sacred writings in which the the followers of that religion complain against our God. To to, to the best of my knowledge, that is the case. We get the right to complain against God. But ultimately, we end up like Job, if we really belong to him, saying, I'm going to put my hand over my mouth. I, I should have never spoken in the first place. God's wrath is righteously poured out toward sinners. And part of what Jesus was saying to the leaders was that if you do not understand that now, you will one day. For those of us who are permitted to process the particulars of this debate, 2,000 years removed, the stakes are just as high today as they were the day that Jesus said these things. Everyone you see, as C.S. Lewis said, If you could just see people in the state that they're going to be, you would see a godlike individual or a demon from hell. Every single person we know is going to be in that state when it will become very clear. If these religious leaders could not be good enough, and they were incredibly good people, If they couldn't be good enough to avoid God's wrath, who are we to think that one, that we should just do the best we can and hope everything will work out all right? John's gospel steadily leads us to the cross where Jesus will fulfill the purpose for which he came to absorb the wrath of God, that those who stand and hide behind the cross are safe. He will die for sinners. Our hope of eternal life is to confess our sinful state and to call out to God for mercy even as we put our trust in Jesus' death on the cross as payment for our sins. Does such a commitment seem like a casual commitment to you? Does it seem like we ought to be able to if, as long as we just say, you know what, I believe in Jesus. Yes, I'm, I'm really good friends with Jesus. Uh, just live to live then any way that we want to, knowing that our ticket to heaven is punched. Jesus addressed the very thing when he said, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord will belong to him, or will on that day be passed from death to life, but will go into eternal judgment. When Jesus said, if you abide in my word, he, it, it's from the Greek word minnow, and it means to remain connected to Jesus as the source of life. Perseverance in Jesus is the ultimate indication of genuine faith. It's only one of the reasons, it's only one of the reasons you should look around at the gray hair in this room, at the ones who are not as steady as they used to be, and say, tell me what I need to do to be where you are one day. Perseverance in Christ is the genuine indicator, the true indicator of genuine faith. Notice I didn't say perseverance in the religious culture or religious cultural living, but rather remaining intimately connected with Jesus is the indication of genuine faith. Do not walk away from Jesus as you see others doing today. What does it mean to abide in Jesus? Well, the second point of The application addresses this question. Walking in the light requires sitting in the Word. It's been noted several times that everything we read in the Gospel of John has already been introduced in the prologue, John 1, verses 1 through 18. The prologue is a summary up front of what is to follow. And it also provides clear commentary for what may seem to be a little bit ambiguous later on. It's like, I'm not exactly sure what Jesus means. In fact, that's a great practice in John. If you're really trying to figure it out, go back to the prologue. Go back to those first 18 verses. Read those and, and oh, oh yeah, okay, that is what's going on. You will recall that in John 1.1, 1, 1, we were told, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then in John 1.14, we're told, Who the Word is? It's Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in verse 12, all who believe in Jesus are given the right to become children of God. Interesting, is it not, that Jesus is called The word of God or the speech of God or David Calvert would like to think about rightly. He thinks about this rightly. The speech act, what God is doing in giving his word and what is accomplished on the basis of his word. In John 17, 17, when Jesus is praying for us, not just the disciples, but all who would believe as a result of their testimony. He says to the Father, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Cause them to grow spiritually, to to, to be the people that you have called them to be through truth. Your word is truth. When Jesus uses the analogy of the vine and the branches in John 15, he is going to say that abiding in his word is the key to life. For his followers. Not just abundant life that we're going to see soon in John 10.10. But life itself comes as a result of being connected to Jesus. And sitting in his word. If you invited someone to your home. And they came in. You had the greetings. You know used to be handshakes. Now it's hugs. We're a hugging and mugging bunch, aren't we? Um, and then you offer them a seat and they say, oh, no thanks, I'm just going to stand. How would you feel about that? Not like they're really that interested in being there. Maybe it's slightly better than them saying, hey, I brought my pajamas, so if you'll just show me the guest room, I'll change, get changed into my PJs. Jesus wants us to bring our pajamas. He wants us to set up and to abide with Him at that level. You cannot have a casual relationship with Scripture and expect a deep relationship with the Lord. You cannot have a casual relationship with Scripture and expect a deep relationship with Jesus. There are multiple ways we need to interact with Scripture, such as reading through the Scripture often. That's why I encourage you every year to read through the Bible this year. Look, in the second service this morning, Lord willing, a, a key mentor in my life, and the one who put me into this kind of relationship with the Lord with the word is going to be here, Mike Calhoun from Word of Life, some of you may know Mike from Word of Life days, but Mike made such an impression on me, and it changed it took, took made such a difference in my life that I named my son Michael after him Alice or Linda, and I named Michael after Mike Calhoun, and it was just his steady. Time in the Word that made him different than almost anybody I've known. And he read the Bible through maybe a couple of times a year. I don't know. But I want to encourage you to read it through every year. Your understanding of God's ways will grow as you engage the big picture year after year. And after many years of such commitment, your understanding will begin to grow exponentially. Can't believe it. It's just, you think ab- about the, the prologue of John being a key to the rest of the book. It just opens up our understanding to the rest of the book. When you read through the scripture year after year and you say, I'm not getting anything out of this, you are getting far more than you think. It's going in there. And year after year, it begins to build. Your understanding begins to build and grow. And one day, it will begin to grow leaps and bounds. That's another reason. That's another reason you need to seek out those who are older in the congregation and talk to them. Because they have an understanding of the word that can never be gotten from commentaries and what other people say. But time with the Lord. Jack Lucas, every time Jack Lucas talks about a verse of Scripture, my heart rises in gratitude to the Lord. Because he knows not only the Word, but he knows the God of the Word. Jim and Joy, Acock, look, if I start talking, the folks in our home group, uh, old folks who need a med student, we didn't need a med student in our home group. If, if you please, application, send them to me. Um, We need you, you need us, we got issues, you're curious, it works. So, but you need to be listening to these folks who have been in the Word year after year after year. We also need time to study and to reflect and to meditate on the Word. It's only one reason Sunday mornings and participation in home groups are so important as a commitment to spending time every day in the Word. The ultimate benefit is the subject of the final point. Abiding in Jesus is the only path in life that produces freedom. What do you think is meant by that? what you think Jesus meant when he said you shall know the truth if you abide in my word you will know the truth and the truth will set you free next week we're going to see the Pharisees reacting to Jesus statement by saying we're God's chosen people we've never been slaves are you saying I'm a slave people love to do that don't they You you present a positive, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What are you trying to say? You're saying, I need freedom? We're Abraham's children. We've never been free. But they were slaves to sin. We all serve something, right? Do you think you're free? If so, the deacons will be holding baskets at the back of the Sanctuary, and you can put your phone in there when you walk out. We'll give it back next week, all right? Is that good? No, I'm a slave! (laughs) It's not the phone. It's something. Constantly, we have masters vying for our willing participation in that kind of a relationship. One of the masters that evangelicals serve is Christian systems. You've heard about Joshua Harris, who wrote, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, apostatizing from the faith. That's what scripture calls it. He's an apostate. He said, I no longer believe that God exists. And he apologized profusely. He's apologized for his narrow views. On sexuality. Look I confess that as I say what I'm about to say. That I have not read the book. I Kissed Dating Goodbye. But not long after it came out. Another book was written. And I got this for my kids. I gave dating a chance. Because I'm suspicious. Of Christian evangelical Systems. If you're going to read And Profit As Well You May, Radical by David Platt, be sure to also read Ordinary, which is Michael Horton's response. I love John Piper. I'm not a fan of Christian hedonism. Make sure that nobody makes this tape available to the Christian. But that's the point, isn't it? There is a system that evangelicals have set up. And if we're not careful, we'll add the same 39 sort of laws that the Pharisees added to the Sabbath. And Jesus was condemned not for going against the biblical requirements for Sabbath, but by going against the oral traditions. 39 of them. Think about it. So again, it's easy to get caught up in the evangelical culture and become as legalistic as the Pharisees. Finally, thank God, finally people are starting to say maybe our ideas about vision for the church were misguided. Discern what scripture says, and be free, don't be enslaved by what seems so good. Purity is a biblical command that is absolutely a requirement for Jesus' followers. Although, of course, we fail to fully live up to the standard that God set, which is why we need Jesus. Purity culture is problematic for all the reasons that we've been talking about. When the culture you embrace becomes too great a burden for you to bear. You're in danger of walking away from it all. See, another one of Josh Harris's big problems is probably that he was 21 when he became a millionaire or close to <clears throat> because we were desperate to raise our kids in the right way. <clears throat> when you find yourself <clears throat> soaking. In the truth of God's word with a heart of trust you will be free indeed. Let me just say this. Find the truth in the context of the local church. That's where all the New Testament letters were written. It's in the context of the local church. Don't Constantly be looking somewhere else. Well, church is good, but man, this other thing, that's the big deal. Church was plan A and there is no plan B. What is the path to Jesus? It's wrapped up in spending time with him. So as we close, I want to challenge you in the following ways. Hold on to Jesus. Don't let go no matter what. And I say all the time. It's not so much that we're holding on to him. But he's holding on to us. But but hold on to Jesus. Don't let go. Don't walk away. Sit at his feet like Mary. Hearing his word. You remember that from not too long ago? Martha's mistake and Mary's priority. And how worship is more important than work. Work follows worship. Worship does not necessarily follow work for the Lord. There is an order. Look to Jesus. And live. And quit worrying about how you measure up. To other Christians. I shouldn't put the air quotes. We're, it's legit. Christians. Who know more. Work more. Look to Jesus and live. And then gaze. At him. And be free. There's really no other path to freedom but it's there if you're willing to get in the word and stay in the word that's where you're going to find Jesus let's pray Father, we are grateful for the plan that sent your son Jesus to die in our place. We are grateful that you sent and the son sent the Holy Spirit to not leave us directionless and without understanding of your ways which sometimes seem very confusing to everyone and to us. But even in those times, we know that we can trust you. So, Father, we pray that you would bring us into a deep longing for your word. And may we find the Savior in that place. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray.